right. Good morning once again, everybody. We're glad that you're with us. Those of you who are joining us by live stream, those of you who are here with us in person, we're glad you're here. Happy Sunday to you. And in particular today, happy Palm Sunday. Uh, this is Palm Sunday when the, the church calendar, the church all around the world, um, beginning, marking the beginning of Holy Week, leading to Easter Sunday, the greatest celebration of the year for us Christians. Uh, so this week's Palm Sunday. We're a little bit ahead, so if someone's a real stickler for the church calendar, this is going to grind your gears a little bit. We've been focusing uh, on Good Friday, so we're skipping ahead, that is, at least in terms of Holy Week. Uh, today's Palm Sunday, we're skipping ahead and looking at, uh, at what's known as Good Friday, in particular, the meaning of the cross. This is the central symbol um, of our faith as Christians, the cross together with, with Easter, that is. Um, and so we've been looking at this, the, the meaning of the cross. And you may not be aware, but, but this is actually a long uh, historic conversation. What does this mean, right? We see the symbol, of, the symbol of the cross or the symbol of the crucifix as it's portrayed uh, in many parts of the church. And we stand and we look and we gaze upon this symbol. We imagine this moment, this Good Friday scene uh, in history as it played out. And we just stand and we want to ask the question, what does this mean? And you may not be aware, many Christians aren't aware, that this is actually a long historic conversation that's really quite broad and sweeping uh, in terms of uh, the breadth of answers to that question. And so, um, uh, so this morning, we're really pressing into that question. What, what, is, what is it that makes Good Friday good? You know, um, so, so that's really the, the question that we're centered on. We did uh, before we left off a couple weeks ago, and today we're picking that up. Um, and so I want to recap a little bit of where, where we left off a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about this. And um, what I'd like to invite you to do is to think in terms of those ripples in a pond. Um, and uh, essentially, the, the three ripples could be thought of like this. There's, when it comes to, w what is the meaning of the cross? There's fact, and then there's image, and then there's theory. And what we mean by that is, the, the, when, we, when we ask the question, what does this mean? The center of answering that question is the fact, what, what actually happened. And, of course, one of the uh, fancy words for this whole conversation is atonement. What is, what is the meaning of the atonement? That, some, that word is sometimes used uh, for the cross of Christ, referred to as the atonement. Um, and, and the word atonement, in essence, it simply means at one, that somehow through, through Christ, what God has done through Christ is that we, humanity, we have been put at one with God. That's the sense of meaning of the word atonement. And so, so the first place to start is the fact, what actually happened. Jesus Christ fully revealed the heart and character of God. He was killed by Rome, and then he was vindicated by God. That's what happened. Um, and then the second, if, in terms of ripples of a pond, the, the second ripple, or I guess the first ripple, um, could be thought of as images. That is to say that the Bible includes many images, word pictures, metaphors, whatever you want to call them, uh, that highlight and illuminate various aspects and implications of what God has done in and through Christ. And we're going to look at several of those today. And then the, oh, thank you, Ooh, read my mind. Uh, and then the, I don't know if you'd call this the second ripple or the third ripple. Anyway, you got fact, you got image, and then next is theory. And what we mean by that is these are, these are, this is a collection of ideas, there are lots of them, known as atonement theories. 
And this is where various writers, teachers, thinkers, theologians have come up with and created a number of, I guess you would call them models or schemes or storylines in the attempt to explain precisely how it is that God has made us at one with himself through Christ. So you got the fact of what happened, and you got these images. We're going to look at several of them today. And you got these theories, and these theories where, you know, people like us, our great-grandparents in the faith and so on, they come up with these storylines that try to, try to put together and make sense or maybe explain it. And sometimes, as I'm going to suggest as we progress this morning, uh, probably try too hard to explain too much uh, in many cases. So, so you got fact, image, theory. So today we're going to focus on the middle of that. We're going to focus on some of the images that the Bible uses to illuminate various aspects of the meaning of the cross. And so that is to say, the New Testament describes the cross of Christ using a wide array of word pictures drawn from many different areas of life. To summarize where we're going this morning, you've got You've got a series of words and images that are drawn from the area of, of well, what commonly is thought of as the legal world or the covenant world. You've got the, the images of justification. Uh, then you've got words and images that are drawn from the world of worship and ritual, namely the idea of sacrifice. And then you've got words and images that are drawn from, well, I guess the world of commerce, and we'll talk more about all these uh, so you got the idea of redemption, that the cross of Christ is referred to as, as somehow like a redemption. Um, then you got words that are drawn from just plain old personal relationships, like um, the word reconciliation, like two people were estranged, now they're reconciled. We'll talk more about all these. Then you got words and images that are drawn from the area of battle, like the cross of Christ is, is described as a victory, as a triumph over evil and over powers. So let's look more closely at these. Let's start with justification. I love this translation from Romans chapter 3, the NET translation. It says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So here you have so far two of these different word pictures crammed into this one sentence. God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat acceptable, uh, accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, God's righteousness, that is, because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. So here we just have, we're just using this for now as an example of the word justification. Um, what is the meaning of this word justification? Well, commonly as we, um, in our modern atmosphere, as we unpack the meaning of justification, we attach to it this legal, this legal kind of sense, and we basically would, would uh, define the meaning of justification as being declared not guilty. And that's okay, um, but I want to say it's probably not what Paul um, has in mind. Uh, for us to think in those terms would be for us to imagine that Paul could foresee our current legal system where there's a courtroom and a judge and a black robe and a hammer and all, you know, the gavel and all that stuff. Well, Paul wouldn't have any, anything like that in, in mind. Um, in his era. I want to suggest, and this is from, uh, uh, from excellent scholarship on this, on this word and its context, I want to suggest an understanding, which is not altogether different than that, but, but at least in terms, it's different in terms of feel, and that is to, 
to um, realize that the, that the word justification um, that Paul's using here comes from the arena of, of the covenant family, of God's covenant family. And justified in that context is a way of saying who's in the family, who's in the covenant family. It's, a, it's in that sense, then, uh, justification is a relational term. And in Paul's mind, in Paul's economy, in his world, when he says that we have been justified by faith in Christ, what he's saying is it's no longer about all the trappings of living a kosher life that causes one to be a part of the covenant family. It is instead faith in Christ that causes us to be in the family. So the upshot of all that is that Paul here sees the death of Christ and is saying that the death of Christ is proof positive that God has, in fact, embraced humanity fully and completely. We are in the family as God's very own sons and daughters. Paul says the meaning that, that this, and this is, we're talking about many sides of this good news, and Paul is looking at a side of it here, and he's saying when you, when you, when you, um, when you, um, engage or embrace the meaning of this event he says what i want you to see is that this is the historical moment in time place and time proof positive evidence that you are god's sons and daughters you are justified we know this because of the cross it's strong stuff the second image that we're going to talk about this morning is this image of sacrifice. Here's an example, Ephesians 5. Again, the Apostle Paul writing, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is one of several places where the death of Christ is described as a sacrifice. What could this mean? I mean, one possibility that we have to consider would be that Jesus' blood was shed like the blood of animals in Jewish sacrificial practices. Now, this is a serious question. Could that be what Paul has in mind and what Paul is saying? This is, it is a serious question, and so it's worth looking into just a little bit. Um, here's another place, Hebrews chapter 9. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So says the preacher of Hebrews. And that's true under the law. Certainly, if you think about the Levitical codes, there's blood everywhere. It's what was called blood manipulation everywhere in the, in the prescribed processes. And so the writer of Hebrews here says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And, and that's true, but not entirely true. Uh, in fact, the law itself, and we're going to look at it in just a moment, Leviticus itself, specifies an exception where forgiveness by God is promised with a ceremony that does not involve blood manipulation. Watch this, Leviticus 5. But if you cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, you shall bring as your offering for the sin that you've committed 
one-tenth of an ephah of choice flour for a sin offering. You shall not put oil on it or lay frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. So here's a prescription in the law given by the Levitical priestly, you know, that whole, that whole piece of the Jewish worship apparatus where there's a forgiveness right, a, a sacrificial right for forgiveness where blood is not involved, right? Flour doesn't have blood. Okay, we get that. Okay, so, so there's, there's that, but still we get what the preacher of Hebrews is saying, and he's making, he's making the point that the law, in, his, in this case Leviticus, prescribes blood manipulation everywhere you look. But we also realize something else of great importance that's revealed here. And I just want to say it bluntly, and then we're going to look at it. I want to say this. Listen, God, in fact, does not require blood sacrifice in order for him to be able to grant his good gifts to humanity. He never has. Now, some people say, well, that's a bold statement. I just want to say, not really. It comes right from the scripture in the very same uh, book, in fact, Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to this. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, See, God, I've come to do your will, O God. And the scroll of the book was written of me. When he, now, this is the preacher of Hebrews talking again. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and in sin offerings. These are offered according to the law, as you all know. Then he added, see, I have come to do your will. Now, again, the writer of Hebrews talking to us, he says, he abolishes the first in order to establish the second. Now, this is so profound, everybody. Think about what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's actually putting the words of Psalm, chapter, Psalm 40 in the mouth of Christ, which is really creative and beautiful. Uh, now, you know, Psalm 40, we believe, was written by King David hundreds of years before Christ. And yet, the writer of Hebrews sees something important here, and he's handing it to us like on a silver platter. What did he abolish in the flow of thought there? Well, he, Christ... He abolished sacrifice. Why? Because God never wanted it. Never required it. Never, never required it. So he abolished sacrifice. And what did he, Christ, what did he establish? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells you, I have come to do your will. Why? Because that's what God has always wanted. He wants human beings to do his will. That's how the story begins, right? Genesis 1. We're created in God's image. We're given this divine mandate to to bring about God's loving and wise care over creation. That's what God has always wanted from all of us and still does. So the writer of Hebrews is laying it out for us. He abolishes sacrifice in order to establish what? I'm here to do your will. And so, still though, we have it like for real, there's no avoiding it. Still, it happens again and again throughout the New Testament that the death of Jesus is described as a sacrifice. So how do we understand this? 
And I want to propose that we have like two options. The first is what I want to call heroic sacrifice. And by this, I mean just the most common and familiar meaning of the word sacrifice, right? An example like, you know, a, a, a person who sacrificed themselves or sacrificed his or her life, you know, for the benefit of others or in the attempt to save others. Well, we can think of Jesus' death as a sacrifice in that sense, that he sacrificed himself. When he was faced with unjust, violent uh, accusation and ultimately execution, he did not retaliate in kind. He sacrificed himself to, to bring about the peaceable mission uh, of God. He, he lived out the Sermon on the Mount, right? So, and so he sacrificed himself for the vision, the mission, etc., as he laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn the other cheek, love your enemies, etc. So he sacrificed himself in that sense. I've heard this story uh, from several different Eastern Orthodox teachers um, who are explaining this notion of Christ's death as a sacrifice, and it's given with a story to illustrate. So imagine a group of children are playing in a city park, and they lose focus, they lose their concentration, and they wander across the street uh, into a dangerous part of town, and subsequently these children are taken hostage by armed criminals. So the police chief, local police chief, finds out what's happened, and so he uh, takes observation of the, of the situation, assesses the situation, and sees what's happening, and he comes up with this plan, and he says, guys, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, he's looking at his other uh, corps of young officers around, and he says, guys, I got to tell you, there's, there's, there's no other way to do this, to rescue these children. It's a really dicey situation. I'm going to need one of you officers to volunteer for a very dangerous mission. I need one of you to run into that building and grab those children and return them to safety. It's very dangerous. It's risky. But I need somebody to do it. And there's this one young officer who raises his hand. He says, sir, I'll do it. And so this young officer runs into the building to rescue the children. As he's standing there holding the door open and risking the children out, he gets all the children out to safety. All the bullets are flying. And finally, ultimately, a bullet hits this young officer and he's killed. So the children have been brought to safety. They've been rescued safely. He got the children to safety, but he lost his life in doing so. This is a heroic sacrifice by this young officer. So taking that storyline as our point of reference, did Jesus give his life as a heroic sacrifice? Yes. Was Jesus committed to the peaceable kingdom of God to the point of losing his life when he was unjustly attacked by the violent, by the powers that be? Yes, Jesus is a heroic sacrifice in this sense. Now, I just want to pause here to kind of take stock of what we're saying. Notice how different this storyline is from the, the idea or the storyline given to us by St. Anselm and his theory of substitution. For Anselm, the meaning of the cross, as you know, is that Jesus died in our place as a, as a substitute for us in order to satisfy God's 
demand that his own offended honor must be restored. So Jesus satisfied the offended honor of God by dying in our place as our substitute. That's the way Anselm positioned the narrative. Okay, so yes, that means Jesus' death would be seen, could be described as a sacrifice. But under Anselm's storyline, Jesus' death as a sacrifice, his death would be a sacrifice to God as a substitute victim who died the death that God required. So that's the story, that's the theory given to us by St. Anselm, and it has become, of course, wildly popular. For many modern-day Christians, at least in our part of the world, in our part of the church, that's the only narrative that many Christians have ever heard. But contrast that storyline given to us by St. Anselm with the storyline of the young, brave police officer, which is, which is representative of the earliest among our great-great-grandfathers in the faith, this is the earliest understanding of the meaning of the cross. Um, so we're thinking about that image. Did, did the young officer die? Yes. Could we describe the young officer's death as a sacrifice? Yes. But did the police chief require the death of the young officer as a substitute victim? No. Was the, for, for Anselm, God was the problem that needed to be solved on Good Friday. But in, the, in this, and again, it's a modern story, but it's drawing from the ancient conception of the cross with the police chief and the young police officer. In that story, the police chief is not the problem being solved. It's the, rest, it's the children held hostage. That's the problem being solved. The criminals, the bad guys, they're the problem being solved. So it's a completely different. You see, this is an example of what I mean. You got an image. In this case, the image is sacrificed. But, but what, within what narrative, within what storyline do we place that image? See, and that makes all the difference in the world. So in both narratives, you have what can be described as a sacrifice, but the meaning is very, very different between the two storylines. And let me say again before we move on, as I've said before, um, and I'm going to keep on saying, my foundational concern for you uh, is the question of God image. What is God like? Because in every area of theological discourse, you're always kicking up dust. And in that dust, you're forming an image of what God is like. And this is certainly true when we're meditating on the meaning of the cross. So with these two alternatives in mind, let's ask that question, what is God like? What is God like? Well, under Anselm's, under Anselm's narrative of substitutionary, uh, substitutionary sacrifice, What's God like? Well, God is an offended deity who requires the death of an innocent victim in order to be placated or in order for his offended honor to be restored. And of course, about 500 years after Anselm, theologian John Calvin would come along and he would take his cues from Anselm, but then would take things even further. And so for Calvin, human sinfulness has evoked not, as Anselm said, an offended honor, uh, God's offended honor, but for, for Calvin, he's going to say that human sinfulness has evoked the wrath of God. And so the crucifixion for Calvin is understood as what God required in order to satisfy his own wrath against human sinfulness. And again, is Jesus' death a sacrifice? Yes, under that model, it's a sacrifice to God to placate an offended or wrathful deity. Everybody 
this is not just wrong about the character of God. This is toxic to the human soul. In both cases, God, both for Anselm and for Calvin, God is portrayed ultimately as incapable of gratuitous forgiveness. Ultimately, God is portrayed as incapable of grace. In both cases, ultimate reality, that is the divine, God, is not only incapable of grace because he demands some sort of trade before he can forgive or embrace or save or whatever, not only incapable of grace, but furthermore, in both of these narratives, this ultimate reality, think about this, requires the unjust death of an innocent human being in order for the divine himself to be able to dispense good gifts to the world. Everybody, this is a tragic error. And on top of that, when you consider that we become like what we worship, this imagery becomes all the more problematic. In fact, this might even explain why so many believers have worshipped this God for years and have only gotten meaner and meaner. Why? Because when this is the image of God that you worship, when your, back's, when your back is against the wall, guess what? You consider it an act of holiness to demand ruthless satisfaction. That's how the human soul works. But no, to the contrary. God is, in fact, that is to say, ultimate reality is, in fact, abounding in love, overflowing in compassion, graciously forgiving, always inviting, always chasing us down in his self-giving love. That's the reality of the character of this God. So when it comes to sacrifice, the first choice we have is the idea of heroic sacrifice. Now, here's the, the second aspect that I do want us to consider before we move on, um, and that is, let's just flip to the other side of sacrifice, and again, we're trying to, as best we can, enter into Paul's world and the writer of Hebrews. Um, maybe that's Paul, maybe not, we'll know one day. Um, so we need to consider that what's meant is ritual sacrifice, as in Levitical, you know, Jewish at the temple sacrifice. It's possible that some New Testament authors, at least in some instances, could be describing Jesus' death in terms of these Jewish ritual sacrificial practices. They could be doing that. And that would be a very, very bold move. And this is so for a couple of reasons. Number one, we know that God condemns human sacrifice. This is one of the big, big things that God had to get through to his own people after 400 years in Egyptian you know, slavery. One of the big things to get through to them. He abhors human sacrifices. He condemns it. Not only that, human sacrifice not only is repulsive to God, but it's also repulsive to most modern societies, most modern cultures. And so it would be a very bold, right? All, all the authors of the New Testament were Jewish, right? We get that. So, so for these people who know God's revulsion over human sacrifice, for them to describe Jesus' death possibly as a ritual sacrifice, as in the Levitical term, term uh, it, that would be startling for them to do so. The second reason why this would be a bold move 
is because other than bloodshed and death, the crucifixion of Christ actually has almost nothing in common with Hebrew ritual sacrifice. Right? Think about the differences, and these are just coming on the top of my head. You can probably think of more. But Israelite ritual sacrifice was performed only in the temple. And everyone knows that. The authors of the New Testament know that, etc. The crucifixion of Christ, on the other hand, occurred in public, in broad daylight. Israelite ritual sacrifices were performed meticulously carefully um, and only performed by carefully selected and sanctified priests. On the other hand, the crucifixion of Christ was committed by pagan Roman soldiers who couldn't care a thing about God's prescribed protocols for sacrifice. In Israelite ritual sacrifice, the animal was killed humanely. Jesus, on the other hand, was killed brutally and shamefully for the express purpose of shame, in fact. Um, the final contrast on my list is that Israelite ritual sacrificial practices in addition to the priest, were attended by and only by reverent, penitent worshipers. On the other hand, the crucifixion of Christ was, well, it was attended by a defiant, self-assured mob, you could say, a mocking mob. So considering all these differences, which all the biblical authors are far more aware of than you and I, of course. Considering all these differences, why would they, including Paul, why would they even suggest a parallel? And here's the answer I want to propose for your consideration. It's because in doing so, what they're saying is that we can, should, look upon the crucifixion of Christ as a statement of unthinkable grace. Consider this, in Jewish ritual sacrifice, God's good gifts are mm, meted out sparingly, right? Like only in the temple, only under certain circumstances, only when the penitent worshiper fulfills certain protocols, only for the Jewish people, the devout and devoted Jewish people, right? So those are some of the characteristics of, of sacrificial practice as it's related to the, at least, under their perception, the meeting out of God's good gifts, etc. But in contrast, in the death of Christ, we see the unthinkable. Contrasted to all that in, in every way, we see the self-emptying, self-giving love of God in Christ poured out lavishly without measure. He said it in the moment, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Maybe, maybe this makes it easier to, even as I'm saying this, I realize it's hard for me to, to say it. So maybe think of it like this. Maybe in describing Jesus' death as a sacrifice, maybe Paul is doing what Jewish sacrificial practices, um, uh, with Jewish sac sacrificial practices, what Jesus did with Jewish table fellowship. In other words, think about it. You know, 
one of the practices of Jesus, he scandalized the Jewish religious leaders by sharing table fellowship with anyone and everyone, not just those who were kosher. Jesus practiced radical hospitality. In, in effect, Jesus deregulated table fellowship, right, by practicing radical inclusion. And in doing so, he lived out this, this witness um, that communion with God is opened up to anyone. The presence of God is opened up to everyone. It's radical inclusion. Jesus did that with table fellowship. Well, maybe Paul is doing something similar by describing the crucifixion of Christ as a sacrifice. Here again, the life of God, the presence of God, communion with God is being radically opened up. It's being made public, like, like communion with God is being deregulated in every way in the death of Christ. Sacrifice. So it's possible that when they describe Jesus' death as a sacrifice, they're thinking in terms of Levitical cultic practices. And if that's true, then you're talking about a truly scandalous image that actually turns Jewish sacrificial practices inside out and turns them into, turns the death of Christ into a declaration of God's radical presence. So that sacrifice, a couple more, then we'll do some of the so what's. Uh, redemption, we love this, Ephesians 1, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption, this is a word that means deliverance, release, ransom. We talked about that. Jesus himself referred apparently not, uh, not just to his death, but to his entire life as a ransom. But that we certainly would include uh, his giving away his life as a ransom. Deliverance, release, freedom, the cross. Next, reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God, Paul says, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. Reconciliation, it means what you know it means. It, it's a relational word. Uh, from estrangement to brought together Again, and let me just pause here um, and say what I think is really beautiful. Now, when, when we read this passage, my impulse and, and yours, I suspect, as well, is to think about the cross when we read this, that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. Um, but I think it's helpful uh, for all of us to recognize that, again, our earliest great-great-great-great-grandparents in the faith when they thought about God reconciling the world to himself in Christ, they were more likely to focus on the incarnation, Christmas. That at Christmas, God reconciled himself to humanity. How? By becoming one of us. That's not transactional. That's not spiritual technology. That's just wham, God reconciled himself to humanity. Beautiful. So, but, but the idea is still the same. It's a, it's a relational term. But, but notice here, and I think this is critically important, notice here the way it's stated, that God is reconciling the world to himself. In other words, God never turned away from us. It was we who had turned away from him. And so now in Christ, God, Paul says, has reconciled the world to himself. 
powerful. Finally, last one. Uh, from the world of battle, victory, and so on. Here's a good one, Colossians 2. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. And here comes the cross part. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. So here you have these, these echoes of battle, victory, um, that in Christ, God triumphed over the powers that be, right? So, so here, you know, we have justification from the world of, of covenant and family. We have redemption from the world of like from commerce, like relief, liberty. I say commerce, not necessarily of, um, that's not the best way to say that. Redemption comes from the world of bondage, right? So, so someone's in enslavement and bondage, entrapped, and redemption is the fix for that. Um, so, you, so you have these images, sacrifice, you have these images from all kinds of different areas of life. And so the question is, all right, so we got all these images that are attached to the understanding the meaning of the cross. So a natural question is, which is it? Which, which image? Which image actually explains to us the meaning of the cross? And the answer is, yes, all of them. All of them do. Um, are these images mutually exclusive of one another? Uh, and the answer is, they're only mutually exclusive um, if we insist that these images are to be understood as literal. Because if, if we insist that any one of these images is literal, then, yeah, it's going to be the case that some other image isn't going to work anymore, right? But if we understand that all of these images are, are being used to just shed light on one particular aspect of the multifaceted good news that is the cross and resurrection of Christ. Right? For, so, for example, if, you know, battle is very different from reconciliation, right? Reconciliation, right, like typically in human relationships, when people are estranged from one another, reconciliation is when the battle ends, right? And so, but, but so Paul can say that, that God in Christ was reconciling us, and he can say that in Christ God won a great victory. Why? Well, that's, that's a different way to look at it, just different aspects. Redemption is very different from sacrifice. Justification is very different from, well, all of them. But, but family, covenant family, justification, just God uh, gratuitously declaring that you are in the family, well, that's very different from battle. That's a whole different economy. And so, so all of these images are perfectly suited uh, and work perfectly well at drawing us in and showing us different aspects of the meaning of of the cross, so long as we don't press any of them further than they're uh, prescribed to go. And so, the final question, why? Why so many images displaying for us various aspects of the cross? And I want to say the answer to that question is because our need is diverse and God's work in Christ is comprehensive. If, if you feel like an outcast, what you need is justification. 
What you need is to hear your heavenly father say, you're my son, you're my daughter. If you feel weighted down with guilt, then what you need is the megaphone of God's radical grace as declared through Christ's sacrifice. If you feel like the world and everyone in it is aligned against you, then what you need is to see and to know that Christ is the victorious one. And he's won the battle, he's won the battle over all the powers of the accuser against you. If you feel like trapped, stuck in a loop, stuck in painful patterns that repeat themselves over and over in your life, harmful habits, you feel like you're held captive by forces that are bigger than you are, then what you need is redemption. You need to know that Jesus is the liberator. If you feel mad at the world and maybe even mad at God, so far gone that you're too far gone, you know, um, then what you need to know is that God has reconciled the world to himself, including you, and he will not let you go. That's the reason there's a Jesus, because he's reconciled you to himself. That's what you need to know. This good news is so good that we can hardly comprehend it. And this good news is so many-sided, many, multi-sided, multifaceted, many-sided, however you want to say it, um, that there's no end of exploring the facets of this good thing that God has done in Christ. And again, I want to say, the anchor for all of this is not in a theory. It's not in a concept. A concept doesn't save. A theory doesn't save. This is anchored in history. This is what happened. Jesus was born among us. He pitched his tent and dwelt among us. And he was crucified by Rome. And the earliest Christians said, that was not the end of the story. Easter came. And everything Jesus said and did, everything he taught, everything he said and uh, uh, embodied about who God is, was vindicated entirely on Easter. This is, this is anchored in history. This good news is better news that we can comprehend. It's multifaceted so that there's no end of our um, metabolizing of it. And it's anchored not in a concept, not in a theory, not in words. It's anchored in history. This God has invaded time and space to chase you down. Happy Good Friday coming up this week. Let's pray.